Well, you know, it, it, it's horrible. It's horrible to think that, uh, uh, you know, people would do something like that. Obviously, you know, issue, I guess, with with insurance monies or whatever. It doesn't matter. The idea is, is it, to lose two firefighters in a fire like that, you know, it, it, it gets, it breaks your heart, first off. And secondly, it leaves an indelible imprint on, on each of us here in New Smyrna Beach that were there during that time frame. That was New Smyrna Beach Mayor Jim Hathaway talking to me about the lasting impact one arson 27 years ago had on his city. Two firefighters died inside the burning restaurant on the North Causeway on Labor Day 1991. The full story behind that fire is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter with the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the September 2nd, 1991 arson that destroyed Stormy's Seafood Restaurant in downtown New Smyrna Beach. Two 28-year-old city firefighters were killed in that blaze. The owner and manager of the restaurant, Biff Utter, was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Among my guests for that episode will be New Smyrna Beach Mayor Jim Hathaway, as well as former News Journal reporter Chase Squires and Utter's former daughter-in-law, Michelle Utter. Coming up... The story of a fatal stabbing inside a home in Port Orange. The victim was a single mother, and the suspect, an acquaintance of hers, was found dead from an apparent suicide following a manhunt that lasted more than three days. Diana Kessler was a 32-year-old single mother of a 7-year-old boy. Her friends told me they knew her as a fun-loving person who was always aching to please. She doted on her son. She took him everywhere. Last Monday night, someone in the Lone Oak neighborhood of Port Orange walked into the home owned by Thomas McMullen Sr. and his wife, Linda, to feed their cat. The couple was vacationing in New York at the time. The house was locked, but he got the couple's permission to break into the home. After he gained entry and walked into the kitchen, he discovered the body of Diana Kessler. Police told the News Journal that Kessler was stabbed more than 100 times. She also suffered severe head trauma. Defensive wounds to her extremities showed she had tried to defend herself during the attack. From the beginning, police named Thomas McMullen Jr., the son of the couple who owned the home, as a person of interest. Eventually, he was formally named a suspect. Police said Kessler and McMullen knew each other, but they were not involved romantically. A friend of Kessler's told me she thought Kessler rejected McMullen's advances, and that's what led to him snapping into a state of rage. McMullen who was 37, had a history of drug abuse and a lengthy criminal history. He served various stints in jail and state prison. His convictions ranged from drug trafficking to passing worthless checks. McMullen's parents kicked their son out of their house August 16th 
and change their locks. They told the News Journal last week they weren't sure how he gained access to the house. Linda McMullen said she and her husband struggled to help their son, but he was never able to overcome his demons. They invited him back into their home after his last stint in rehab, but that didn't work out. Linda McMullen told the News Journal, quote, We are extremely sorry for what Tommy Jr. has done as he left a young child motherless. Police announced Thursday they were offering a $5,000 reward for information about Tommy McMullen's whereabouts. Daytona Beach Police received a call that afternoon about a man walking along Clyde Morris Boulevard near LPGA Boulevard who matched McMullen's description. Police raced to the area, saw him walking on the street, and surrounded him and pointed guns at him. He was ordered onto the ground and handcuffed. It took police five minutes to realize the man they had apprehended wasn't Tommy McMullen. It was actually 31-year-old Miles Casey. I spoke to him just moments after police let him go. All right, I was walking down the road, coming back from the child support office to meet with my girl, and a cop pulled up on me, and he had his gun drawn, and they told me to get on the ground, and they put me in handcuffs, and they told me that they were looking for a guy that was out here for this murder case, I guess, from Port Orange, and that somebody called it in and said that I looked like him. Um, They ran my name and realized I wasn't the guy, and they let me go. How long were you in custody? For about five minutes. And they had handcuffs on you? You were on the ground? Yes. Scary situation? Yeah, yeah. It shook, shook me up a little bit. Almost 24 hours later, McMullen was found. He was discovered dead in the woods in Daytona Beach near West International Speedway Boulevard. It was an area that McMullen used to frequent, and his body was actually found within walking distance of where Kessler's car was found days earlier. Police did canvass the area after the car was found, but didn't find McMullen. Detectives returned to the scene Friday and had better luck. Police would not say how McMullen likely killed himself. They will wait until the autopsy is completed before releasing anything official. A GoFundMe account was set up to help Kessler's son and to cover funeral expenses. It had more than doubled its goal by Friday afternoon. Friends of hers are planning a celebration of life event for Saturday in Daytona Beach. Coming up, the story of a new Smyrna Beach fire that resulted in the deaths of two firefighters and a 25-year prison sentence for the man convicted of starting it. I remember the mood of the town mostly. It's such a small town and such a tight-knit community. It was just pure shock. That was Chase Squires, a reporter with the Daytona Beach News Journal during the early 1990s. His office was at the new Smyrna Beach Bureau of the News Journal, located on Canal Street, less than a mile from where Stormy's Seafood Restaurant had stood for years. During the early morning hours of Labor Day, September 2nd, 1991, Stormy's was set on fire. The inferno was so intense that it took more than four hours for firefighters to put it out. The population of New Smyrna in 1991 was about 17,000. Today, that population exceeds 26,000. New Smyrna is regularly referred to as Orlando's Beach. 
It attracts visitors from all over Central Florida and beyond. Back then, New Smyrna felt more like a desolate beach town. So a fire that big, and one that took the lives of two firefighters, made an indelible mark on the community. The restaurant itself had history. The one-story building, located southwest of the North Bridge at 132 North Causeway, was built in 1955. The business began as a small barbecue establishment. The original owners, the Yelvingtons, eventually expanded it. It was known as Madame Susie's before being called Stormy's during the early 1980s. It was a pretty prominent restaurant. It was right there on the causeway. You couldn't you couldn't miss it going to the beach and, and headed over to Flagler, so or Flagler Avenue. So it just seemed really odd to to just see this smoldering hulk there where where that restaurant used to be. It was like a it was like a piece of the landscape had had disappeared, uh, you know, overnight while you were sleeping. The 200-seat restaurant was closed at the time of the fire. The two New Smyrna firefighters who died in the fire that morning were 28-year-olds Doug Sapp and Mark Allen Wilkes. They went to high school together. They were best friends. When Wilkes's wife, Mary, kissed her husband goodbye early Sunday morning, she was still groggy. She had just woken up. She and her husband had a 12-month-old daughter. The plan was for Mark to be home all day Monday so that the family could spend Labor Day together. Mary had been a firefighter herself, so she knew about the risks involved with the job. She still worried about Mark each time he left for work. Mark Wilkes only wanted to be a firefighter. His uncles and cousins were firefighters themselves. Sapp, on the other hand, dabbled in other things during his young adult life. He tried college a few times, but in the end, the job of firefighting is what drew him in the most. Wilkes and Sapp began their careers as volunteer firefighters. Eventually, they took the plunge and got hired full-time at the new Smyrna Beach Fire Department. Sapp was an extrication specialist, an expert in handling the giant tool commonly known as the Jaws of Life. He led a team of firefighters that was chosen to be one of 20 American teams to compete in an extrication contest held in Canada. He bought the city's old number five fire engine and he helped restore it. The vehicle is still in use and it's been used often in parades. Here is New Smyrna Beach Mayor Jim Hathaway. Doug Sapp uh, put together old number five along with help with, with a lot of folks. And uh, it's now, you know, it, it, it's almost like a shrine uh, to do the Saps and, and, and what they have done for our community. That engine is used in our parades every year. We used to have a, a, a 4th of July parade, and I rode in it. In fact, I've got a picture hanging in my office wall at City Hall, uh, riding in that old number five on the 4th of July. And then I have one with my wife and I uh, riding in it uh, for the Christmas parade. So I've used that engine many, many times over the 20-plus the years that I've served in elective office, and uh, it continues to be used today as we use it in our parades and special events. Sapp's father owned a drugstore. His mother had been a principal of a middle school before getting a job with the school district. Sapp was single and fatherless when he died. 
Wilkes, who was survived by his wife and daughter, was a driver engineer and was in charge of the city's hazmat team. He also was a sergeant in the U.S. Army National Guard. The fire chief at the time, Michael Kelly, talked to the media about Sapp and Wilkes mere hours after their deaths. He said, quote, they don't make them any better than those two men. Wilkes's wife and daughter, who is now a 28-year-old woman, moved out of the county years ago. I was able to contact Sapp's father, who still lives in New Smyrna Beach. He declined to be interviewed for this story. He told me the pain is still too great. During the morning of September 2nd, a police detective, Fred Brown, passed by the building and noticed smoke coming from it. It was reported at 12.19 a.m. Two fire crews were dispatched, five firefighters in all, including Sapp and Wilkes. Firefighters pulled up at 12.21 a.m., and entered the 4,000-square-foot building. It was made of concrete blocks and wood. Sapp and Wilkes were ordered to search the building for occupants and start ventilating it to let out the heat and smoke. When they got there, the fire was just smoldering. It didn't appear to be generating much heat. Then they walked inside. They were in there for only a short time when a flashover occurred. That's an instance when a fire spreads very rapidly across a gap due to intense heat. Basically, the heat was so intense that the entire building and its contents ignited in seconds. Eventually, 75 firefighters showed up at the scene. But all those firefighters could not find Sapp and Wilkes because of the lack of visibility in the heat. The bodies were eventually found shortly before 4 a.m. in the middle of the restaurant's dining area. New Smyrna's mayor at the time, George Musson, called it one of the worst fires in the history of the city. Current mayor, Jim Hathaway, said New Smyrna was devastated to learn about the circumstances of the firefighters' deaths. One moment they were going in like it's a routine structure fire. And then seconds later, they get overwhelmed with flames and heat. Here we are, a small town, and everybody knows everybody. And the fact that you have two young men getting killed in an accident like that, and it truly was, you know, really a freak accident for them to go in and have this flash over and, and you know, the roof came down. It's just, it's horrible. Sapp and Wilkes were killed quickly. They died from asphyxiation when their air hoses melted in the intense heat. They were cut off from their air packs. Their bodies were not severely burned because they were protected by their fire-resistant gear. The operator of Stormy's was Forrest Utter, known by everyone as Biff. Biff Utter's silent partner in the restaurant was his ex-wife. He may have been the one running the restaurant, but the original owners, the Yelvingtons, still owned the building. Things were looking bleak for Utter's restaurant well before the fire. Tom Yelvington and his mother, Marion, had initiated foreclosure proceedings against Utter for non-payment. Chase Squires told me that people in town were already making assumptions right from the start. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do remember that. I, I can remember just people talking right from the start. It had to be arson. 
it was just sort of a, a, a mumbling amongst the people in town that, you know, there's no way this was an accident. I can remember there was a news report, I don't think it was from us, um, very early on saying that officials, um, inciting an unnamed source, saying that officials believed it was arson. And I, I can remember the investigators being pretty unhappy that that was, that was out there. But I don't think it surprised anyone. On Tuesday, September 3rd, federal specialists were brought in to investigate the scene. Initially, investigators thought the fire may have been started in the kitchen or storage area in the rear of the building. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms was called in. They're called whenever a commercial building is suspected of being set on fire. In an article that appeared in the news journal the Wednesday after the fire, the 46-year-old Utter denied he had anything to do with the blaze or that he stood to gain anything from it. He said he didn't have insurance. He told the reporter, quote, The restaurant was my life. It was the only thing I had. It's a shame people are making all these accusations. He added that the deaths of Sapp and Wilkes were a terrible tragedy. As for the foreclosure, Utter said he had hired an attorney to fight it. He had spent thousands to repaint the inside and install a new sign, indicating he had no desire to lose his restaurant. The article also revealed that Utter owed more than $252,000 in back mortgage payments and interest. Funeral services were held at First United Methodist Church of New Smyrna Beach at 310 Douglas Street. At the funeral, there were more than 5,000 firefighters who had traveled from all over Florida, as well as from New York and Canada. They stood and saluted as two fire engines carried their fallen comrades to Sea Pines Memorial Gardens in neighboring Edgewater. Sapp's body was transported in the old engine he had put back together. The funeral is something that Chase Squires will never forget. The images and sounds from that funeral are as imprinted in his memory as the images and odors from the fire itself the morning he went to the scene. I remember the smell of the smoke. I lived pretty close, right in downtown at the time. And I remember the smell that morning. You could smell it all over town, the smoke. And I lived at the time across the street from the church where they held the funeral. And I can remember being up there and and watching from there. They were broadcasting the the funeral outside to the entire crowd. It was was an overflow crowd. You couldn't fit all that people into the church. And the... uh, the TV choppers, the helicopters hovering hovering overhead and filming it. I remember the noise. So my memory of this is, is, is largely of sort of sights, smells, and emotion. The funeral was enormous. Uniformed firefighters from across North America poured into New Smyrna Beach. News crews from Daytona Beach to Orlando also covered it. The city had seen nothing like it before. Yeah, the, the, the fire community, you know, poured into town. Even today, uh, a firefighter killed in, in the line of duty is, is pretty rare and, and is, you know, causes a, a big impact. But back then for, I mean, you got to remember Florida was itself was a lot smaller, just, just not as many people. Um, so a lot of small departments and small communities um, made up the, the firefighting uh, cadre. And I can remember trucks coming in down uh, Route 54, just just pouring in from, from all over. 
And um, from my vantage point, from my porch, looking down onto the street, the street was just just filled with with mourners from from the town and from out of town. And uh, you know, the, the sound of the, heli- the the helicopters above us, and and the, the you could barely hear the speakers outside the church from just the, the sea of humanity that was out there. It was it was a uh, a major milestone for the town, for sure. One week after the fire on September 9th, the city's fire marshal announced that someone had deliberately set the fire at Stormy's. From that moment on, it was an arson homicide investigation. A story in the news journal stated that investigators began looking into Utter's connection into several fires at properties he owned or leased in Kentucky in the 1970s and 80s. Among the structures that burned down was his trailer home in Kentucky. Then he built a house to replace that one. He used the money from the insurance from the first fire to build his second home. He didn't have insurance on that second home for years. But eventually he did get that insurance about a decade after the first house burned down. A month or so after he obtained that insurance policy, his second house burned to the ground. At that time, there was no evidence of arson, so investigators just chalked it up to bad luck. The article disclosed even more. A restaurant that Utter once owned with his brother, Jimbo's in Williamsport, Kentucky, also burned down in 1983. Furthermore, the Internal Revenue Service said it filed liens totaling more than $131,000 against Utter and his silent partner from 1986 through the middle of 1991. They failed to pay payroll taxes and personal income taxes. He owned a strip mining business in Tennessee that failed, and that too drained his finances. Utter, when he bought Stormy's in 1996, put the mortgage in the name of his ex-wife to shield it from the IRS. To get fire insurance on it, he lied on the insurance form about his history with fire. Paychecks to his employees had bounced. He was in danger of losing his liquor license. There couldn't have been a clearer motive for investigators. While the investigation was going, and while criminal charges, serious ones, were looming over Utter, the city of New Smyrna Beach was pestering him about the rubble. He was responsible for moving it. Utter told the city that he wanted a three-day extension on his deadline so that his own investigator could inspect the rubble. That extension was granted. He was told he had to remove the rubble by October 31st. He missed that deadline. After a code enforcement meeting, Utter was given until January 2nd, 1992 to remove the rubble or else face a daily fine of $250. The rubble was finally hauled away by mid-February. The fines totaled nearly $10,000. As expected, a lien was imposed. Utter told the media and authorities that the restaurant wasn't insured, but he and his silent partner actually signed a claim worth $408,000 through Sheffield Insurance Company. That same company, in turn, offered a $26,000 reward to anyone with information leading to an arrest. 
the insurance that Utter previously owned did lapse. So the Yelvingtons, the owners of that building, actually insured the restaurant themselves. The family matriarch, Marion Yelvington, unwittingly told Utter about the insurance policy, not realizing what he was capable of. Utter realized he now had a way out of debt. He would set fire to the building and the Yelvingtons would get paid for the mortgage. Additionally, Utter would stand to gain about $150,000 from it. If all had gone according to plan, Utter would have also had sole ownership of the land, according to investigators. Utter would have come away a rich man and would have had more than enough money to pay off all of his massive debts. But Sheffield refused to pay the claim. But all of that was predicated on Sheffield paying the claim. The company smelled something fishy and refused to pay it. While the investigation was going on, the Utter family pulled together. Everyone in the family believed or seemed to believe that Biff Utter was innocent. Here is Michelle Utter, Biff Utter's former daughter-in-law. She was married to Utter's only son for nearly 22 years. Uh, they were adamant that he was innocent, that he didn't do anything wrong. Um, it was a subject that was closed. My husband never wanted to talk about it. All he, he wanted to believe that his father was innocent. So there wasn't really much conversation about it. Now, I had my own beliefs on it, but it was a conversation that we just never had. In June 1994, nearly three years after the fire, federal authorities charged Utter and his 71-year-old mother, Alice Pauline Duncan, with charges of arson resulting in death, conspiracy to commit arson, and using fire to commit conspiracy and arson. During their first court appearance, both Utter and Duncan pleaded not guilty. Their bail was set at $100,000 apiece. They were soon freed on bail. According to the indictments, Duncan purposely failed to activate the alarm system at the close of business the previous night. Both she and Utter, according to court documents, set the fire. Although subsequent documents stated that Utter hired someone else to set it. The accelerant apparently used was kerosene. The person who did set the fire came forward and cooperated with federal agents, according to news reports at the time. ATF agents were asked why it took so long for the indictments to come down. Their reply was simply that such investigations take time. The trial was held in December 1994 in U.S. District Court in Orlando. The government had a couple of speed bumps during the trial. One came in the form of a witness they had called to the stand. The lead prosecutor, Paul Byron, now a federal judge, told jurors during his opening argument that Utter's former girlfriend would testify that she was at home, sleeping with Utter, when they were awakened by the call about the fire. When he got to the scene, he was mostly calm while he watched his place burn, but then panicked when he was told two firefighters were inside. While on the stand, that witness told jurors a different story. She said Utter was visibly distraught from the get-go, even before he heard there were firefighters inside. The second hurdle the government faced was the lack of evidence it had against Utter's co-defendant. 
the defense attorney who represented Duncan made a heartfelt plea with the judge in the case to acquit his client. He made that motion after the prosecution presented all of its evidence. The judge was swayed. She agreed with Duncan's attorney that there wasn't ample evidence against Duncan to present the case to jurors. So she acquitted Duncan. After hearing she was free to go, Duncan turned and hugged her son tightly. The judge refused to acquit Utter, and jurors began deliberating on December 9th, 1994. The judge, however, without the presence of the jury, said in court that the government's case against Utter was thin. One tragic detail of the morning of September 2nd, 1991, was revealed at trial. Sapp and Wilkes had asked their commander to let them go back inside the burning building. The heat was so intense and the smoke was so thick that the first group of firefighters, which included Sapp and Wilkes, couldn't make any progress. So all of them were ordered to come back inside. Sapp and Wilkes insisted they go back in and try again. Seconds after they did, they were overcome by the wall of flame. The government did have some helpful witnesses. One of Utter's former waitresses, for instance, testified that her boss borrowed $3,000 from another employee so he could pay the liquor bill. It further illustrated how desperate Utter was to obtain a lot of money very fast. Utter drove a Mercedes, owned a boat, and lived in a riverfront home. Prosecutors said Utter refused to give up any of these luxuries in order to pull himself out of debt. Instead, he went the reckless and dishonest route, and as a result, two innocent men lost their lives. In the end, jurors agreed with the government's contention that the fire was an inside job. Utter was convicted of federal conspiracy, arson, and mail fraud. However, jurors only convicted him of setting the fire, not causing the deaths of the two firefighters. Had they convicted him of that charge, he would have been sentenced to life in prison. In March 1995, Utter was sentenced to 15 years in prison. After it was over, prosecutor Paul Byron told the media, quote, That's certainly a lengthy sentence, but we wanted longer. It appeared there was no way Byron would get his wish. In fact, the conviction he did obtain actually disintegrated. In October 1996, Utter's conviction was overturned by a federal appeals court. The 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta found the district court incorrectly allowed evidence to be introduced at trial that shouldn't have been presented, including the information that a home previously owned by Utter in Kentucky was burned down. The appeals court also ruled that jurors never should have heard about the threats Utter allegedly made to, quote, burn out a tenant at one of his properties. The court ruled that the Kentucky fire was never determined to be an arson fire, so that's why it shouldn't have been part of the evidence. It gave jurors too strong of an impression that Utter had a tendency to use fire to solve his problems. Utter would later be released from prison. 
Here again is Michelle Utter describing the family's reaction to that news. They're ecstatic. They really didn't think that he was going to go back in. They thought for sure that he uh, would be freed. Biff Utter was tried again in January 1999. The prosecution looked better prepared the second time. Various people testified they heard Utter say he would burn down his establishment before relinquishing it. Instead of focusing on previous fires, Byron, who again prosecuted the case, focused more on the threats Utter had made to burn down Stormy's. That evidence swayed jurors. On January 28, 1999, after deliberating for more than four hours, jurors returned with guilty verdicts for the same three charges. When Utter was first convicted in 1994, family members gasped in court. This time, they broke down and cried, according to stories in the News Journal. On April 29, Utter was sentenced. He got 25 years in prison. 10 years more than his original sentence. Byron told the media that he was more satisfied with that sentence. Utter's family, by comparison, was crushed. You know, of course, everybody was was upset. Um, I know my husband was as well. They didn't think it was, of course, a fair trial. Twelve jurors in the first trial unanimously agreed that Utter was guilty. Twelve more jurors came to the same conclusion four years later. Even Michelle Utter believed her father-in-law was guilty. She may have been the only one in the family who thought that. Even though she married Utter's son, the deaths of those two firefighters were personal to her, like they were to lots of people who grew up in New Smyrna Beach. Actually, I knew a lot of the firefighters, and uh, I actually was on the volunteer fire department in Edgewater, and a lot of my friends grew up in that town and were on either volunteer or paid firefighters. And that was before we started dating. It was horrible. Um, I know a lot of the firefighters that did go there. I know the terrible loss and feeling and hurt that the town dealt. I was upset, appalled about it. Biff Utter, now 73, served most of his 25-year sentence in Jessup, Georgia. Presumably as a result of good behavior, he was released a few years early. He got out of prison last December. Utter resumed his life in southeast Volusia County. He did not return my messages seeking participation in this podcast. Michelle Utter, who was estranged from her husband, is likely not going to hear from Biff Utter either. One anecdote she shared with me was how much time Utter needed to become reacclimated to society. The one thing he struggled with the most was figuring out how to handle some of society's newest technologies. You know, when he came back, they gave him a car so he could drive, and they gave him a smartphone, and um, I knew that he had to be shown how to use the phone because the last time he had a phone was, I don't know, what we had, flip phones or the old Nextels, maybe. But yeah, he had to be shown how to use it. Um had to call numerous times and ask questions, how to use his phone, how to, actually it had uh, Google Maps and things like that he was not used to. 
One of them, my boys had actually showed him how to use the phone because his father asked him to. Michelle Utter told me that Biff Utter's mother, Alice Duncan, who is now 95 years old, is still alive and living in a nursing home. Chase Squires found out through an internet search that Utter was released from prison, and he reached out to one of my editors, who was with the News Journal the same time he was. As a result, I got in touch with him, and he agreed to participate in this podcast. Squires is no longer a journalist, but his decorated career took him all over Florida and Colorado, and his last job was with the Associated Press. He wrote a lot of interesting stories and covered a lot of high-profile criminal cases, and there is still something about Stormy's arson and the aftermath that makes him rank it near the top of the most memorable crimes he ever wrote about. I asked him, why he thought that was. I think I'd said I was, you know, only about 25. I'd only been a reporter for a few years. Um, this was probably the, the biggest, most impactful case, or one of the biggest, most impactful cases that I had experienced. I, I covered um, a school shooting that um, up in, in South Carolina in my first job, um, and I, I remember that one distinctly. But, you know, other than that, this was probably the, the most town-shaking ground-shaking story that had happened around me. And just to get that feeling, you know, before the internet, before the cell phones, everything was done by payphone or rushing back to the office. Um, interviews were done, you know, largely in person. You knocked on doors. It was very, it was very personal. When you talked, you know, when you talked to a firefighter, you, you know, or the chief, you would, you would go to the, to the station, and you'd feel it all around you, rather than catching someone on a cell phone and and just having a private conversation. So I think that's sort of what what burned itself into, into my memory was the, the parts of. You have living this. You know, you're, you're living right in town. It's all around you. If you go to a restaurant, you know, at the, at the drugstore on Canal Street, they're talking about it. If you um, if you go out for a beer after work, they're talking about it. It really just consumed the town at, at the time. Thank you for listening. Join me next week for another episode of Sun Crime State. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.